Good morning. Uh, Tim is going to come and read our two readings um, before uh, we launch into our exploration of God's Word. First passage is 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the second passage is Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, testified with, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the Lord? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with your all, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. As we begin this morning, maybe um, either with your eyes closed or open, maybe just focus on Jesus as best you know how, as I pray. Lord, true to that video, we want to avoid being simplistic and naive. And we ask you, Jesus, who experienced all the complexity of this world, as we experience that, and who died for us, in the complexities, and who lives and reigns and cares for our souls, we look to you for the answer. We just pray, Jesus, that you would speak clearly to our hearts and minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this series on doubt... We have rediscovered how our journey, and here at Mosaic, that journey is uniting ourselves and others in the way of Jesus, is a journey that happens even while we struggle with deep heartaches, with real questions, with unsettling disappointments, and serious uncertainties. The good news of the Christian faith is that despite having all of that, we can still be people of faith. We can still experience the treasures of the Christian life. Treasures like guidance. Anyone like some guidance right now? <laughs> um, treasures like peace. Anyone 
in need of serenity. Blessings like encouragement. Anyone needs someone to come to them and externally and then internally put courage into them for some challenge that you're facing. These and many, many other treasures of the Christian life are still accessible even while we have doubt. And even the circumstance immune things like hope and joy, even those we can still experience even as we have doubt. And it's possible to move forward and make real progress in life and not feel stuck in our doubt and to actually have a quality of life that is characterized by God's love, by his presence, and his power. How is that possible? It's inspiring words as I read it to myself, but how is that possible? How is it possible to have doubt and experience the quality of life that is supposedly our right as Christians? It's an important question. This morning, I want to walk us through the scriptures, and we're going to take a little bit of a Bible bath. Anyone okay with doing a Bible bath this morning? Okay. Um, To explore how kind of two aspects of the Christian faith, uh, connection, connection in Christ, and companionship, companionship with one another, offer us a way to experience doubt even as we enjoy the treasures of the Christian life. But, you know, let's always look to the words of Jesus when getting cues about where to maybe find the answers. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Amen? But take heart, I have overcome the world. We'll come back to what Jesus is saying there, which actually he said to his disciples prior to going to the cross. And we're going to explore the idea that it is in Christ that we find this supernatural ability in the midst of our doubts to experience the blessings of the Christian life. But sometimes it's helpful to have an illustration. Uh, I think when we talk about whether uh, it's a spiritual concept, um, a biblical principle, Sometimes, um, maybe like me, it's easier to look at something in a picture as opposed to just getting an information download of, of words. So, simultaneously carrying doubts and unresolved questions on the one hand, and then all these treasures, peace, joy, hope, and encouragement on the other, is kind of like what we're going to get to experience next Saturday. Anyone know what's going on next Saturday in the morning? An eclipse, that's right. So a solar eclipse. This is where the moon 
passes between the earth and the sun. And as this map shows, uh, those in southwest Oregon and the San Antonio, Texas areas are going to get a quote-unquote total eclipse on the morning of October 14. Maybe you have witnessed uh, one of these before. Um, I think I mentioned the last time I spoke, when I uh, turned 11, I had a Halley's Comet birthday party, okay? What a geeky thing, okay? <laughs> and since then, I'm proud to say that I've organized not a few uh, wee hours of the morning and even during the day astro- astronomy event uh, social gatherings. And sometimes invite friends and family over for this. So um, here are some pictures from uh, the last time we had a solar eclipse. So this is my mother on the right. And a picture, I think actually my brother took this picture in Tennessee um, as he experienced um, the solar eclipse. And by the way, this is really important. If you're going to look at the eclipse, you have to have the safety goggles, okay? Um, or you can do the, um, the pinhole and paper technique, which I'm happy to like help you with after the service, okay? <laughs> but don't look directly at the sun, okay? Um, because the sliver of sunlight that still uh, emerges around the moon uh, is very pronounced and can be very dangerous, okay? Okay, so now next week, we will, next Saturday, we'll have about a 60% uh, eclipse. It's like the image on the left here. Um, so those in San Antonio and Southwest Oregon, they're going to get something closer to the images on the right. But what we will get in Manhattan uh, around 10.30 a.m. next Saturday is the one on the left, okay? And... I like this illustration. I kind of want us to use it and make the most of it. So if you'll think of the sun as the whole range of doubts that we have, and not just intellectual doubts, but um, heart-wrenching uncertainties, uh, real questions that seem to stick with us, uh, profound disappointments, unresolved heartache. Think of the of the sun as all that stuff, okay? And then think of the moon as life-giving perspective and power offered in Christ. And what do we see happening? We see an eclipse happening. And even for the images on the right, there's never a 100% covering of all of the doubt questions, and uncertainty. Yet there's still a real eclipse. And there's still, again, thinking metaphorically of the moon representing the perspective, the wisdom, and the vitality, the power available to us in Christ. We see that it's true what Jesus said, that he overcomes all of those things, even as they still persist. So where can we find this wisdom and power? Tim, thank you for reading. Tim read from 1 Corinthians and also from Matthew 22. The background uh, to kind of begin to think about 
the 1 Corinthians passage, I think it's helpful to, to consider this excerpt a, f- a few verses later f- um, from what Tim read. So 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 25. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul is arguing that for both the religious types, for example, the Jews, and the non-religious types, For example, the Greeks, which, by the way, covers everyone. Both camps, the religious types and the non-religious types, can find power and wisdom in Christ. Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God. The letter to, the first letter to the Corinthians, authored by the Apostle Paul, um, is to a community that Paul, about two and a half years prior to writing this, um, had begun, had planted. He had planted a church in this city of Corinth. So this letter that uh, Tim read an excerpt from is written two and a half years after Paul had kind of had most of his uh, activity in the city. And Corinth in Paul's day was a center of Mediterranean trade. And it was on, if you remember from uh, social studies, remember the isthmus? Maybe that was a question on one of your, your tests, maybe in geography. Uh, an isthmus, thin land strip connecting two larger masses. Corinth, situated on an isthmus connecting two larger land masses in Greece, had on either side of this thin land strip seaports. You can look it up um, in Google Maps. Just look for ancient Corinth. Actually, my, my sister-in-law, Marty, did you go to Corinth when you were in Greece? Just drove past it. All right. Yeah. Well, when, when we describe what Corinth is like, perhaps uh, Marty was wise to go past it. So, so thin is the isthmus in Corinth that the Roman emperor, um, over about two decades, from AD 40 to AD 66, actually tried to build a water canal from one of the seaports to the other. And he was unsuccessful, but actually, close to 2,000 years later, in 1893, it was finished. There's actually a canal connecting these two ports. But this was an effort ongoing in Paul's day, this effort to build this uh, engineering feat, this canal, which was unsuccessful, but nevertheless, uh, the emperor tried. And it was this community that Paul goes to, um, and he discovers that, like most seaport areas, uh, Corinth was experiencing some measure of prosperity, but also plenty of human sin and selfishness, so much so that the Greeks had a word for leading a life of sin and selfishness, Uh, Corinthiazine, which means to live like a Corinthian. It was a pejorative term 
to characterize the people living in this city. And indeed, there was a large temple to Aphrodite, glorifying sexual promiscuity. And being a center of Mediterranean trade, when Paul traveled there, he found in Corinth a whole constellation of different types of people. He found Jews. He found uh, ex-Roman soldiers that had come to the community in their retirement. Uh, Greek philosophers of various kinds. We'll come back to them in a second. Merchants, sailors, uh, slaves, people who had been slaves and had been freed. Other tradespeople, one of whom Paul will meet. And then agents offering all kinds of services and products, good and bad. It was a scary place, and it was actually the biggest city that Paul had visited up to that point. Approximately 250,000 people packed into this small area on this isthmus. Many people describe Corinth, you know, Corinth wasn't like Las Vegas. It wasn't just a uh, quote-unquote sin city. It was, it was a dangerous place. Many people liken it to kind of a modern-day inner city ridden with crime. And Paul, when he arrives, he describes that experience as one in which he is experiencing much fear and trembling. It was a scary place. And not only was it a scary place, but he's coming into Corinth probably around March of the year 50, so right in the middle of of, uh, Emperor Nero trying to get this canal project done. When he arrives, he's actually very discouraged because, you know, he's not going on a missions trip to, say, Hawaii. You know, he's going into the inner city. It's going to be hard work. Maybe picture that. Picture um, Paul going into this community, huge city, brutal conditions, lots of commercial activity, and plenty of debauchery, sexual promiscuity, all kinds of threats. And Paul also, to make things even worse, had just a few weeks before been physically battered. And although he had planted a church in Athens on one of those land masses that the Isthmus connected, it was kind of an unimpressive, um, uninspiring ministry experience for him. So he was drained, he had been physically battered, and then to make matters worse, he was also emotionally deprived because his companions, Silas and Timothy, um, had gone a different way temporarily. So Paul arrives into Corinth doubting himself and doubting the wisdom of starting this church in Corinth. Yet Mustering up what will he had, he tries to do this. And his typical MO when starting a church in a community was to go first to the Jewish synagogue to see if there's anyone of the religious camp that might be interested in the way of Jesus. And as he's walking in this dangerous city, heading to the synagogue, his attention is drawn to someone on one of the sides of the street there were craftspeople engaging in his own familiar occupation of leatherworking or tent making. 
and he meets this person, this man named Aquila. And Aquila was actually a Jew, had been kicked out of Rome by a different emperor prior to Nero because of his faith, and had moved to Corinth. And because of their common familiarity and understanding of leatherworking, they start to chat. Maybe you can picture that. I think that's actually a very good picture of what companionship and friendship looks like. You know, usually I don't make friends by just going up to someone and saying, hey, can I be your friend? Actually, Susie has done that successfully, (laughs) but that's the only person I know that's done that. Usually it's building on some common interest or common activity. That's why serving on a team is a very good way to make friends. Because it's usually in service or in a common activity that we discover, oh yeah, I kind of like that person. Would like to get to know that person. And that's what it's like for Paul. He meets Aquila, a fellow leather worker, and they hatch this friendship. Well, then it turns out Aquila's married. Aquila married to Priscilla. And suddenly Paul, in his doubt-filled Uh, exhausted state, he suddenly has two friends. And they are captivated by the way of Jesus. And so now he has partners in this church planting effort. And then what is more is that Silas and Timothy, they arrive into Corinth and they have good news about what's going on in other churches in the region. So in the midst of this rough and tough inner city experience that Paul has in Corinth, he suddenly has this powerful team of five. Isn't that the number in the form groups, Ben? Yeah, five. Is this where you get it, the idea? (laughs) Excellent. So there's this team of five, and they begin to make a very effective Um, planting of a church in this city in the midst of a situation and environment where they had doubts and a lot of those doubts continued lots of hardship that they faced over the next 18 months these five experience a strong friendship and a strong partnership and it's not just about them doing christian activities they're actually sharing the whole of their lives So that is how an eclipsing experience is happening for Paul. The companionship that he discovers in Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy and Silas, begins to eclipse, not take away, but eclipse the pain and doubts that he has in that environment. One commentator, uh, David Pryor, puts it this way. And it shows how kind God is to us, knowing that we need companionship. Pryor writes this. He says, The Lord who understood the pressures, the depression, the desire to opt out, rallied Paul in his faith, lifting the fear of more physical battering at a time when he knew Paul had had enough. Anyone have had enough about something? The Lord cares. He looked at Paul, and he knew that Paul had had enough. And because of the friendship and companionship of his friends, 
as Paul, two and a half years later, is writing to this church, he must have totally cherished those memories of having friends arrive and be with him in his doubts. For him, those companions were living proof of the faithfulness of God who cares and encourages his wearied servants. Now, two and a half years later, when Paul is writing to the church, he's writing and addressing some bad practices, some bad thinking that's going on in the church. Um, and he, and we won't go into that, but he is basically addressing those things by, by returning to the good news that God is faithful in Christ and in community. So in the reading that uh, Tim read, he tells the, the Corinthian church that they are joined by, quote, all those everywhere who call on the name of Jesus. It's a really important thing to remember is that you and I are not solitary in our faith. There are other Christians present right now on the planet and in history. We're not alone in our faith. Paul says that they have been enriched in every way, that they actually don't lack anything, and that they can draw on mutual encouragement from one another. One of my favorite stories of what mutual encouragement looks like uh, is this. There was once a young man who was really struggling with his doubts. He had come to faith in Christ, but he had found himself drifting away, drifting in difficulty and doubt. So he went to see a wise older man who lived in a cottage, and there was a fire, a coal fire. And as they were discussing, this young man told this older man what was going on in his life and about the doubts that he had. And as the young man is talking, the older man didn't say anything. But the older man went to the fire and with some tongs took out one of the red-hot coals. And then he put it on the cold stone hearth. And as the young man kept chatting, the old man just allowed that coal to go from red-hot to black to dark. And then the old man got the tongs again, put the coal back in the fire, and within a few minutes, the coal was, of course, red hot again. The old man didn't need to say anything. The young man uh, left knowing exactly why his faith had gone dull. We like coal. We need to be with one another. And it is sometimes just the mere presence with one another that we experience the eclipsing of the blessings of companionship, not to erase our doubts, but to overcome them nonetheless. Okay, back to the words of Jesus. John 16, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. It is in Christ that we find our peace. When we receive communion later, part of the way that communion works is that we are declaring that Jesus' death is our death. That's actually what disarms the power and penalty and consequences of sin. It is the fact that Jesus' death is our death, which is part of what it means to be in Christ. Being in Christ is actually 
the most common way that the Apostle Paul refers to Christians, people who are connected in Christ. And one of the realities of being in Christ is that we have someone who can sympathize with us and who actually cares about the hurts we have because since we are connected to him, our hurts are his hurts. One of my favorite writers and a, a preacher, actually preaches at Marty's church in Tennessee, is R.T. Kendall. He says this about understanding the power of Christ relating to our hurts. He says this, When you know that all things work together for good, that God has your life in his hands, and that whatever affects you affects him, you are beginning to get free. Moreover, when he sees your hurt, he says, I'm going to make that situation work out for good. So that's the first promise. When we have doubt, including doubts that bring us hurt, we're still connected in Christ. Can you bring it up, Henry? That is the first promise that we're still connected in Christ. Now, Kendall is alluding partly to the promise in Romans 8.28, which says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that's what connects us to what Tim read from Matthew 22, that God works things out not so much by helping us ironing out every doubt we have and getting, getting clarification. He works things out because of the dynamic of love. God works for the good of those who love him. And that is why Jesus in Matthew 22 is emphasizing so much the priority of loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love is not just a feeling, love is an action. And in the enterprise of faith, love is trust, trusting that Jesus, that our hurts are hurts that affect Jesus and that he will bring them for good. When you take even just a small step of faith, that is love. You are daring to love God. And Paul emphasizes this in his correspondence with the Corinthians because in Corinth, there were different uh, philosophical groups, one of whom were called the Gnostics, who believed that it was knowledge, supposedly superior knowledge that they claimed to have, that it was knowledge that was the key to accessing God's wisdom. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2.9, says... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul declares that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, reveals the wisdom of God. We experience this eclipsing as we love him. It's actually not the interesting information that we acquire, the special knowledge that we get that 
resolves the pain we have in our doubts. No, it's as we love him that we receive new perspective, the wisdom of Christ, and even the transformative power, the power of God. So the key for me and for you in the midst of our doubts is give it a go. It's kind of like what Sarah preached on a few weeks ago. She said, even when you're stuck at the wall full of doubts, do good anyway. And similarly, even when you and I have real questions that have sat with us for a long time, we can still dare to love God and to love one another. And as we express love, I don't know how it works, but somehow that eclipsing experience occurs. Paul uh, reminds the Corinthians of the companionship they have by virtue of being connected. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Martin Luther says this about the power of being reminded of this love that can be fanned into flame through companionship and the presence with one another. Martin Luther Uh, says this, in the church, when gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is a non-bodily, personal power present in the church. The Holy Spirit sent to the church. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us this X-factor experience when we do come together, whether it's in a gathering like this or in a small C church, say you and a friend, or a form group, or the midweek meetup. By the way, I would say that for Susie and I, the midweek meetup has been one of the best ways that we have been able to have, in the words of Martin Luther, fire kindled afresh in our hearts. There's just something that happens when we're together. The video uh, that we've been playing before every sermon, you know, says let's avoid simplistic and naivete thinking. And so in preparing for this, I wanted to be kind of real. And so I um, pulled up um, my personal prayer journal, I, I don't keep a journal every day, but I've, over the last, I don't know, a couple of decades, I've kept a, a decently regular prayer journal where I type uh, my doubts, my joys, my sorrows, my questions, my uh, expressions of gratitude to Jesus. And so I did a little search uh, as I prepared this talk for the word doubt, and I found this prayer journal entry from April 9, 2017. So this six years ago or so. And this is what I wrote. I said, God, I cling to you this morning. You are my hope. I can have hope. You are great, and I can cling to you. Thank you for that. Please save me today from my doubts. Well, then I was really curious, like, man, how bad was life on April 9, 2017? So I started reading more uh, of, the, of my prayer journal entry, and I 
realized that what I was doubting, experiencing at that time in my pain is actually still something that is unresolved. Yet life goes on, doesn't it? What can we count on when things don't get resolved? When, like the eclipse, the sliver of sunlight, painfully, if we have to admit, is still coming around the moon. The good news is that God is faithful. That is, that is the message of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus will never let go. You can be confident that you're in Christ. You can be confident that your hurt is his hurt. The last uh, verse in the reading from 1 Corinthians is verse 9. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So with my unresolved question, that one that I put in my prayer journal six years ago, I there's part of me that wants to be completely healed from that. I want to have complete resolution, but I don't yet have that. But I have experienced the blessings of knowing that Jesus cares about that. I have experienced the blessing and community of having others carry that burden with me. And the good news is, is that ultimately, I will be fully healed of that. We pray, when we pray for healing for, from our doubts or from our disappointments, of course we long for complete healing now. But the reality is, is that one day we can be very confident that we'll be completely healed. When Jesus returns and sets all things right. But until then, his faithfulness is still waxing greater and greater in our lives. And that is how we can overcome and experience this eclipse of the wisdom of God and the power of God, even if we still have some doubts. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mosaic Church podcast. For more teachings, resources, and other news, please visit mosaicmhk.com.